welcome again on The Barricades. This is your host, Maria Cernat, and with me, as usual, the co-host, Bojan Stanislavski, a Bulgarian-born Polish journalist. Thank you for being here with us. Hello, thanks. And uh, we have a special guest, Veronika Suskova-Salninem. She is a researcher from the Czech Republic, and she is also an activist and an editor-in-chief of the platform Argument. Uh, She recently conducted a very interesting research called Mapping the Political Economy of the uh, European Union Peripheries. And uh, she discussed a lot on the uh, questions in the European Union related to inequality, related to power, to power structures, things that you don't usually hear in the mainstream press or the mainstream discourses. I say again that we want to definitely to, and we are decided that we want to escape this polarized discourse, whether uh, where you have either uh, situations where you praise the European Union and you show yourselves as a big fan of the European project, accepting everything related to the European Union, or you demonize it from a very xenophobic perspective, saying that the European Union is somehow stealing the soul of the nation and other uh, themes of the right-wing rhetorics. We want to provide a rational analysis on the inequality in the European Union because this project is worth talking about and it's worth fighting for uh, as countries, as citizens. We discussed in the first segment of our show uh, the structural causes that make the European Union look very unequal with centers, semi-peripheries and peripheries. And it is now the time to discuss on more specific topics. And since uh, I'm from Romania, uh, Bojan is from Bulgaria, currently living in Poland, and uh, Bojan um, raised a very interesting question uh, that related to the Polish agriculture sector, saying that actually the European Union saved agriculture in Poland. And that is very interesting. Why? Because it was completely different in Romania and in Bulgaria, I suppose. What do I mean by that? Well, Romania is a rural country. Romania had uh, in 1945, at the end of World War II, more than 80% of its population living in villages. So we are definitely what I would say, a very rural country, if you allow me. So this is the way Romania looks like. And of course, the agriculture sector was vital to our economy. And uh, I speak also from personal experience. My parents, even though they had uh, important positions in the administration and uh, they went to college and um, they were, so to speak, intellectuals, they are in love with agriculture. They know a lot of things about it. And a lot of people in Romania, especially uh, in older generations, they know how to cultivate things and they are passionate about it. And it is such a shame that unfortunately for Romania, entering the European Union made 
meant a disaster from that point of view. So I want to ask Veronica, why was this possible and what were the regulations and the factors that led to this type of inequality, especially in uh, agriculture? Well, first of all, it was, of course, again, competition. I think uh, Boyan was speaking about it in uh, the form part. Uh, he mentioned uh, there that uh, the uh, accession of uh, our region to the European Union, that was not any charity project. It was project built on the relatively important calculation. calculations. I would say calculations were on the economical side market capture and destruction of competitors and they were also geopolitical which we will let aside now so of course uh, the, the the fact that these countries were entering the european union was creating particular pressures competitive pressures and the negotiation about uh, chapter of agriculture uh, was one of the most, uh, I think, uh, dramatical in a way. And there is also possible to see the biggest inequalities because really the region was accepted within the big pressures from those agricultural countries like France, but of course also in the South Europe, because they saw these countries as, as competitors. Uh, that's that's first thing. So, um, and as you know, in European Union, the, the the thing is that if you are access accessing as candidate country, you have much more smaller leverage than if you are already the country which is member. So uh, it's it's inequal position. Of course, you want in, and they are letting you in. So they they create the conditions, and they have bigger negotiation power in this sense because you want something from them, and they they can they can influence. The, the process. Um, secondly, we have to realize that agriculture get big hit uh, not only during the accession process, but during the transformation, so-called. It means this is very important to realize that uh, the, the system of uh, social, state socialist system uh, ended. Uh, in 1989, and uh, the whole region went in the turmoil, in the huge uh, socio-economic crisis, specifically in in, uh, in the countries like Bulgaria, Romania, but also Poland, by the way. This uh, was a huge hit for the economies. There was huge uh, fall of gross domestic product, unemployment, and uh, debt problems, and other things. Some economists are saying that basically so-called transformational recession in the early 1990s uh, could be uh, counted economically at the same level like war, like if you have war. So this was, we have small war basically without fighting, which, which really uh, changed a lot of structure without any accession process, without any competition pressures from the European Union. Uh, within the accession process. Uh, so already that time, uh, the so-called, I would call it the agriculturalization started to happen. It means that a lot of people were losing jobs, you know, that agriculture was becoming in huge problem, was getting in huge problems. And this was, um, first of all, needed to stabilize, like in the case of Poland, uh, where this was huge population, because if I remember correctly, dates, it was something like 25% of, uh, of working force was still in early 1990s in the agriculture. 33. So 
yes and then it was going down now we are less than 20 percent it's it's still continuing by the way this um, but for example czechoslovakia and then czech and slovak republic this was huge, not a huge problem because we had something like three percent or three to five percent of population in the agriculture so this was not not a huge issue which doesn't mean that we have successful agriculture now we don't have any basically we have to import everything from from spain and poland or somewhere and our agriculture is very small and they have huge problems to compete and if there is some agriculture and this is in all over the region which is telling us also something about how this restructurization was happening it is predominantly uh, controlled by huge agriculture firms which are basically so you don't have small uh, small firms you don't have much cooperatives of these things in the region you have much more really uh, huge uh, firms probably you know former prime minister of uh, czech republic andrei babish and uh, he is one one of the billionaires uh, who was created during the transformation and his his main business is actually connected with agriculture with production of uh, agriculture goods with production of food with production of fertilizers and all this stuff it's called agrofert by the way also and he has really holding which is uh, controlling a lot of uh, agriculture production in the czech republic and this is this is not only czech republic in general the trend is that there are big big holdings which are controlling uh, majority of the production and the small farmers are in huge troubles to compete in this uh, including that they have uh, less resources you know to get all this bureaucracy which european union is asking you to do to get uh, subsidies because without subsidies you can hardly compete and uh, you have to really um, i i know one ecological farmer in the czech republic and she was describing me how horrible this system is uh, how it works and how horrible the agriculture production in the european union in general works because you know you are in situation that uh, the czech farmers or slovak farmers or polish are selling cheaply meat you know which is butchered somewhere else and it, these animals are transferred it's even cruel way if you think about it and all is done because it is cheaper you know uh, because it, somebody makes bigger profits so uh, that's uh, that's one of the issues which was connected with the agriculture with the agriculture policy of the european union uh, toward these countries and um i think it's uh, definitely a huge problem for the countries where you have um, like uh, maria said where you have strong uh, agricultural uh, platform than for the countries which are so industrialized like czech republic but ecologically speaking sustainability ecology this is a growing problem i think because if you have to import basic things like potatoes which could, could grow normally in your country if you have to transfer them you know hundreds and thousands kilometers uh, because you you are not able to produce them or cabbage by the way i remember that in the czech case there was problem there is no czech cabbage because it simply doesn't pay to produce cabbage so even it's one of the basic food in the in the country for centuries there is not enough of czech cabbage because of this because the the small uh, firms are not able to do it and big firms don't see it as lucrative it's better to import it yes this is this is a very very sad reality and i know this i told you from bitter personal experience i mean 
in Romania, once the communist regime fell, uh, uh, villagers were very enthusiastic uh, about getting their lands back. But unfortunately, it was not possible for them, even though I remember because most of my childhood, my parents took me with them to work in agriculture. So everybody was the kind of fanatic, especially since in Romania, this was a longing of Romanian peasants to have their land because we were the last ones in the um, Europe to give up the institution of serfdom. So a lot of people were serfs. And then in 1907, we had a peasant revolt culminating with the killing of 10,000 people. It was a bloody revolt. And it was very centralized. The property was very centralized and people didn't have their own land. And they enjoyed after World War One because they were uh, sent to battle and in return, the Romanian state gave them land. So they had a very powerful incentive to fight in World War One. And then when the communists came and they took the, the lands, they, they perceived this as, uh, as something as some sort of part of their body was taken away because they were so connected. It, it is something worth exploring, something very interesting that happens with people that basically run their life uh, according to the cycles of agriculture. Long story short, after 1989, unfortunately, they were not able to compete, as Veronica says, and now what we've seen is that they went abroad to do menial jobs and quite humiliating jobs in um, cleaning and uh, caring for elderly people and all sorts of jobs that our society, our patriarchal society deems and unimportant. They are very important and they should be paid and respected, but they are not, unfortunately. So they are placed in these uh, sectors of economy that are uh, devalued in our patriarchal and retrograde society. And we are now in a situation in terms of centralization of ownership that is worse than the one we had before 1907 when the peasants rebelled. So I think had it not been for the possibility of Romanian people to go and work abroad, we would have seen uh, massive revolts. Now, the problem is, and I want to go now to Brian to explain what is the situation in Bulgaria if it is it, if it resembles that of Romania, and to discuss how insane is this system that Veronica touched upon, this system where you grow tomatoes in Sicily, maybe you take people from Romania, we transport them there, and you saw even during the pandemic, buses crammed with people growing and risking their lives and risking getting infected to go to um, harvest the tomatoes and other fruits and vegetables in the western part of the society, and then you take it back to Romania. How insane is this? It's insane on its face. And uh, in Bulgaria, we used to have, we used to be, you know, it was like an agricultural kingdom in a sense that, of course, it used to be a republic or socialist republic or people's republic as it used to refer to itself. But uh, the question of the agricultural production, that was something uh, that, you know, should be really put in the history books. 
such a tiny territory like Bulgaria, like uh, 111,000 uh, 111, yeah, square kilometers, and we were able to feed the entire Soviet Union with paprikas, with tomatoes, uh, with other vegetables, with uh, fruits like watermelons, melons, uh, apricots, right? And so on and so forth. Like the list is very long. And now we are importing all this. So obviously, the system that is in place on its face is absolutely ludicrous. It's just, it makes no sense whatsoever. So, you know, you don't really need to get ideological about this. It's enough if you look at it rationally. You can see that things are profoundly wrong. And, uh, you know, this is precisely what I uh, said in the previous segment. This is my problem. My problem is not being the periphery. Because, you know, before 1989, Bulgaria also used to be the periphery. Same as Romania used to be the periphery. Uh, or, or Czech Republic, for that matter, or Poland. Oh, sorry, Czechoslovakia at the time, or, or, or Poland, for that matter. But this was a completely different type of peripheriness, if you like, because during those fifty or like almost sixty years of being a periphery in the Eastern Bloc, the Bulgarian society, from being a primitive rural uh, uh, society moved to uh, got and became an urbanized heavily industrialized uh well educated society that started to belong to something like the second world by all the indications like starting from gini going through you know all others all other indicators that measure the quality of social and economic life and well-being of a nation of nations so uh you, you see, this is, uh, and, and the agriculture, uh, the agri- the agriculture obviously plays the major role here because, you know, in 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 the past, before 1989, how was it managed? Of course, there were some mismanagements and misplanning and so on and so forth, obviously, but it was managed in a collective way. So it was with all the state-owned farms that we had throughout the Eastern Bloc, thanks to the collectivization of the agriculture, uh, we were able to make plans, real plans about how much we're going to produce, how much grain we're going to be producing, uh, I don't know, in a given year, how much, whatever other uh, items, agricultural items, food items, and so on and so forth. And now it's not possible. However, however, the question of subsidies that are uh, provided to farmers in the in the European countries, I think it's it's essential in a sense that it does it should tell us that you know even the capitalists even the neoliberals even they recognize the fact that some amount of planning is absolutely necessary that's why we have those subsidies that some amount of of planning is necessary in agriculture because otherwise we would all be dying of hunger if it was left to you know to the market to decide everything so, you know, of course, those subsidies are now distributed in a manner which we don't like for, you know, all kinds of reasons. But the biggest reason, the, the bottom line is, in my opinion, the fact that the West imagines, as it has imagined, you know, long before, you know, the existence or, you know, of the European Union, 
You know, you could go back to plans like Mitteleuropa, where you were supposed to have, like from the 19th century, where you were supposed to have the German core, okay, the German economy as the core, and then supplemental economies all around Germany, which would, would, would be weak enough to never be able to compete with that German core economy. But that would produce, I don't know, spare parts or exactly would, I don't know, uh, provide cheap labor for whatever services that uh, the rich people living in the core country need. So uh, I suppose that uh, this, is, uh, th this is something that definitely demonstrates, uh, yeah, the agriculture, I mean, definitely demonstrates uh, that, you know, it was first totally split up in a savage manner. I mean, this was ideologically driven, you know, total uh, nonsense, what happened in the 90s in most of the countries that just split their their uh, farms and, and given the land back to the farmers, kind of restitute of the land. And of course, it made no sense economically in any respect. It made no, uh, it, it, it made no sense. It only made sense to sort of satisfy someone's ideological, you know, hype at the moment. But no one thought about, you know, how things are going to actually... Uh, <clears throat> unfold later on and now you have this thing where all those central uh uh where the centralized ownership of land and of agricultural production is reappearing but in a very distorted pervert manner where in bulgaria for example you get people who resemble not you know not, not the leaders of the kolhoz okay that we used to have uh, our Bulgarian variant of that, but who 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 actually resemble more the you know latifundistas from uh, you know from Latin America that used to be uh, you, you know the colonizers right of Latin America. So this this is the situation now, and you know obviously to uh, to answer your question uh, concretely, Maria, obviously there are major uh, uh, similarities between Bulgaria and Romania because we were we were accept our countries were accepted in the European Union at more or less the same time with more or less and it was more or less the same modus operandi that, that, that was already different than the one that had been in place when Poland and, and Czech Republic and other countries uh, were accepted in the European Union and also the role of the, those countries and the role of those societies, uh, that was designed for those societies in those those countries was different than it was for Poland or Czech Republic. And I think Veronica is absolutely right when she said uh, that, yeah, well, Poland uh, was a little more important, you know, because Poland, we're talking about a population of about 40 million people at the time and about 33% of, <clears throat> of those at, in the 90s still li uh, lived in the country and 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 uh, that's where they worked. Now, also Poland is a little different from Romania and from Bulgaria because in Poland, the the authorities after 1945, or yeah, well, actually later, it was I think yeah, late 40s when they when they started this process of collectivization, and they were not successful. They were not able to do that because of the. Uh, uh, because of the resistance from the side of the Polish peasantry. So the Polish peasantry as a class, so to say, is is, is much stronger and much more self-aware. Probably not anymore, but at least that, that, that used to be the case. 
at the time. So here things were a little, a little went a little different during the transition because of this mixture of state-owned and private property. So the Polish agriculture was a little. I think it was a little easier to adapt for the Polish agriculture to the new conditions, thanks to this buffer in the form of uh, of private ownership of land and, and 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 agricultural production. But anyway, at the point when Poland was accepted in the European Union in two thousand and four, at that point Poland was on the brink of something like a peasant revolt because of the poverty that the system had generated uh, over the you know twenty whatever, yeah, 15 years at the time of, of, of its existence after 1989. So obviously, this was a major blow to the agriculture and to the entire society. And also one more thing which I want to add here is that, you know, rural society or society based on the rural tradition is not necessarily something primitive or something, uh, something bad or something, I, I don't know, backward, okay? It, it, like if you look at the history of Bulgaria, for example, then thanks to this agricultural tradition and thanks to the Bulgarian peasantry, the you know the modern state of Bulgaria was able to survive. Really, you know the two world wars and 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 you know other turmoil like the Balkan wars and stuff like that. Thanks to this, uh, uh, thanks to this masses of people living in the country that were able to uh, to to you know to embrace. The, uh, the the loss of human lives, the economic damage that was that, that was happening during all those wars uh, in the twenty in the beginning of the twentieth century in Bulgaria, and it was you know it was it wasn't something that in and out of itself was bad. The problem which we had in the Bulgarian society was that it was uneducated. It you know half of the society was illiterate. Many of uh, the Bulgarians have never heard of a doctor. Uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, this changed after the Second World War when, as I said, uh, people started moving to uh, cities and becoming a modern society under the auspices and under the direction and orchestration of the state institutions. And, of course, it did make us in Bulgaria and in many other uh, countries in the Eastern Bloc, you know, modern societies. We went for 50 years, uh, you know, regardless of all the problems that, obviously did exist uh, within the framework uh, of, of the previous system. We went through a path, within 50 years, we went through a path of development that the Western countries, it had taken them 500 or 200 years. And of course, of course, this, this kind of process also has a price. And one such price is that, you know, now, you know, we rely, and I'm going back to the you know, beginning of the previous, really, uh, segment, when you, Maria, said that, you know, uh, we are inept. Our political classes are inept. I mean, they can't do anything on their own and by their own and through their own, you know, ideas and and, and, and kind of concept or, or, or they cannot assert themselves in the reality because they never, they don't have, you know, the tradition, they don't have the culture, they don't know how it's done, they don't know how to go about this. So... Uh, that's uh, that's my yeah, take. That's, that's really unfortunate. I want to say that unfortunately in uh, Romania, the collectivization meant an open wound. As I told you, peasantry uh, felt like they were amputated. 
because they wanted so much to have their own land that after 1981, it was the only possible solution to give them the land back. But it is so perverse that in a way, nobody told them, look, we are going to take your, your land back. But this is what actually happened. Because since they were unable to compete, they had to rely on other sources to earn money for their daily existence and now our villages are just empty. In my grandmother's village that was thriving and I remember since I was taken there to work in the agriculture which I didn't particularly like but that's another story. So there were a lot of people so it was a thriving community but now it looks like a ghost. I mean dozens of uh, houses are just empty because the elderly people died and there's no one there to take their places because they went abroad to work. And I want to go back to another question related to agriculture because one of the regulations that was imposed when entering the EU was that we do not subsidize our agricultural system. And you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that in agriculture, you need a backup system because the weather cannot be controlled. So it can happen that one in one year you have wonderful results in agriculture and then the other drought comes and you are uh, in a dreadful situation. So you need some sort of backup. But while in France, for instance, a lot of subsidies were given to the uh, farmers in Romania, we were presented from doing that. And I want to ask Veronica, how is that fair? How is that solidarity, European Union coming together of nations, you know, that beautiful song that is the anthem of the European Union and so on and so forth. How is that in harmony with the ideals that we are promoting in the European Union. Well, obviously, it's not. It's uh, which uh, the problem which I was talking before, and that's the question that uh, that the European Union is based on competition more than solidarity. Simply, France has bigger uh, had bigger maneuvering space uh, in uh, order to negotiate for itself better conditions than Romania. That's 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 the simplest answer I can give you. Simply, they they knew how to go um, about it, and they didn't see it in Romania probably so important. I would like to underline here one thing: that in France or in uh, even in Southern Europe, agriculture is also, as you know, important and subsidies uh, of European Union and general the agriculture politics of Euro European Union was seen much more as stabilization factor. It was actually meant to be uh, to stop the things which he was Maria describing. That without subsidies, without support, the villages in France would be also empty. You know, it would happen the same thing like in Romania happened, or in in Spain, because people would simply not be able to live from the agriculture. So they would most probably live to the towns, and the the agriculture could not thrive, and the villages would not continue to exist normally and this was seen and is still seen as a social problem, social and political problem. 
Well, in Romania, unfortunately, this was not probably seen as enough important problem. As I said, most probably it was also because this turmoil happened already in early 1990s without any, you know, European Union policy and subsidies. And this was just the continuation of the process, which was just get in the, or was framed newly within the European Union and which was based on the idea of competition. These are competitors from the East and uh, we, uh, of course, as we France will take care about our French uh, peasants. We don't care, take, take care about some Romanian, Bulgarian or even Polish. That's the, that's the simplest answer I can give you. Uh, competition and uh, the, the fact that uh, competition is still the most important part. Competition for money, competition for markets. Uh, and the European Union is basically, unfortunately, turned into the organization, uh, which is completely based on this neoliberalized idea of, of, of competition, which is uh, much more pushing forward uh, deregulation policies, policies which are so-called helping the market to um, to work well without uh, interventions, uh, which was something what was seen in our part of the European Union in the in the East as as the paradigm of transformation. You know, the transformation was very much based on the Washington consensus, on the on the neoliberal dogmas, on the ideas that market should be not controlled, it should do itself, everything. Uh, and uh, in fact, this means that the economical policy is separated from the politics itself. The politics shouldn't interfere into the things like, is, for example, um, you know, nationalization and redistribution. Uh, it should only help the market forces to work well. You know, that, that was the idea. And we became to be the best pupils for this kind of system and in the in the in the, in the agriculture, but in all economic policy, this was very much reflected at that time. So this this is the answer, competition. Yes, I would say so. But unfortunately, this type of competition also... Um encourages a lot of xenophobic discourses because the reaction to this type of to this type of inequality, harsh measures and simply lack of basic fairness that people come to, to feel, uh, is the uh, xenophobic rhetorics. Uh, they go for politicians that promise, as Boyan said, oh, we are going to raise now, we are going to be independent. How are we going to be independent? Where we are going to have traditional families formed by a man and a woman. Really? <laughs> is this the way to go about it? I mean, we had that. We have that right now. I mean, gay people don't have the right to, to adopt in Romania or to, to form civil partnerships. So how is this going to help us? So I want you, Veronica, for the last minutes of this second segment to tell us a different way of going out of this situation where you have a huge inequality that is pushing people towards xenophobic discourses and extremely populist right-wing leaders. 
Well, that is a very, very complex question. I will not give you any political program for change, but definitely uh, I think we were talking a lot. Uh, everybody of us was mentioning at least once the word sovereignty, you know, and maybe this would be good to make clear what does it mean, because uh, when we speak about sovereignty, we definitely don't mean this, that you will, you know, uh, create social conservative agenda for your society, which is actually demodernization. You go back to the sometime before the modernization and you will cherish some kind of so-called uh, so uh, traditions, which basically, you know, actually all our societies lost their traditions. So usually very fake tradition or traditions which uh, are far from the real traditions. Uh, but sovereignty, I think, in my opinion, should mean more that you have some kind of maneuvering space for making your own society better in the given framework. So uh, it's uh, because uh, one of the things which we are seeing in the project is that despite you have that, like one framework, as I said, European Union is kind of regulational or deregulation or that regime or framework in which we are acting, but still in each of our peripheries, in the south, in the east, and of course in the core countries, that's something else, uh, you have different different constellation of economic relations, different structure of economy, different problems, and within this you have to need some kind of maneuvering space in order to react on the situation. I will. For example, I can give you the example, uh, EU's Green Deal, uh, if the if it's created like it is, it is creating huge problems for countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, for this industrialized heart of the European Union, because we simply cannot, cannot do what they think they programmed in the European Union so quickly. It will destroy our economies, it will destroy... Uh, or do you have, I don't know if you have it in uh, Bulgaria and uh, Romania now, but we have rise of uh, energetic poverty now everywhere in the, in, the, in the peripheries of the EU and specifically in these countries also because of the huge expenses uh, for the energy. So you cannot fit everything at the same way, you know, for each economy in the European Union. And this is what the European Union is doing. They, they take mainly the core countries characteristics or the interests of core countries capitalists and they create some kind of one framework and everybody you know one size suits everybody but it's not true each of us our countries have the different priorities different structure different structural problems different political cultures also and you cannot push them in one one framework this is what eu is doing so sovereignty, in my opinion, is much more about to creating the maneuvering space for yourself within uh, within your your possibilities in order to uh, make your society better. It's not any chauvinist, you know, nationalistic program. Uh, now we will show Brussels, you know, we will, uh, you know, uh, go out of the EU if you if you don't let us and so on and so on. Uh, this is this is not the thing. Yeah. So. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I'd like to, 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 if possible, I'd like to uh, comment on that. Go ahead. Because this is this is very important, I think, uh, that the right-wing response to the nonsense that was uh, imposed on us by the European Union is a lie. This is a lie. Like, okay, let's just assume, you know, for the sake of the discussion, that we're that Poland is leaving the EU. And it is going where? 
Exactly. <laughs> you know, because I can't see, oh, I don't no. know, like Russia is not rebuilding the Warsaw Pact, you know, or the Comic-Con or anything like that. So where are you going to go? And, and you know, it's like you don't need a PhD, all right, to understand. It's enough to be a, a fairly careful observer of the geopolitical, of the global processes, not necessarily even geopolitical, the global process to see that if you want to matter today, and to matter means, by the way, to create also this sort of, to secure this maneuvering space for yourself somehow. If you want to matter, you know, then you got to be part of a block. You got to be part of a block where there are at least 200 to 500 million people, where there are high technologies and where there are many features. Okay, the list is, by the way, quite long, but, you know, those are the basic things. And, you, you know, it's just words like it's it's you can try and and beat the drum of like Poland leaving the EU or Bulgaria leaving the EU hey like you know this is my message to all those people who are sort of getting carried away on this guys it doesn't it's not up to you anymore now you are in the European Union and you are not Great Britain Great Britain was or is the fourth or the fifth largest economy in the world okay you don't get to get to, to, to do the same things as Poland or Bulgaria or Czech Republic you're dependent on other political factors outside and inside all right the country so it's not that you can do the same thing as Great Britain, and it's not that you can do the same things as, as Russia, China, Japan, Brazil, India, or whatever, US, right? So this is this is a lie. This is just a projection. They probably wish that they could lead, you know, a great nation, a great country, and a fantastic economy that will dictate, you know, all countries around, you know, and, and will boss everybody, everyone around. But this is not the case. This has never been the case, okay, uh, in, in terms of modern statehood of our countries, of, of, of you know, Eastern Europe. Europe, basically. So uh, I, I really feel that uh, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But I also want to refer here to one thing uh, that you, Maria, said, which is that, you know, people develop this xenophobic response to, you know, the pressures that are generated economic and, and, and I don't know, other, other types of pressures that are generated by our participation in the European Union and some kind of cultural wars that are on the agenda all the time, of course, because it's very convenient for everyone. So, so, you know, it's on the forefront, but, but, you know, that is true, of course, that people tend to develop those answers, but we also have to ask the question, why are people developing those answers? And this is crucial, I think, for us, and perhaps, and, and I hope our, our, our viewers and listeners, they consume this, it's because there was no other response, there is no left response, there are no left, meaningful leftist organizations that are able to convey an inspiring message, inspiring enough to create mobilizations within the society, small, big, doesn't matter around what kind of causes, there are multiple causes. I mean, starting from, I don't know, uh, the, the, the rising uh, gas prices or energy prices to, I don't know, how much the medicine costs in your local pharmacy. So there, there is nothing like that. I mean, there's no inspiration and there is no mobilization. And mobilizations and inspirations are the only thing the only thing, or at least I have, I have not come across anything else that would work, to overcome the apathy and the demoralization. And this is where we are right now. We're apathic and demoralized societies, which is a very unfortunate uh, statement, but it's true. 
Well, on that not very optimistic note, we will end also this part of our show with the hope that maybe, maybe some left-wing political forces will arise that will be able to have a discourse of their own, not as Boyan said on one of our previous episodes, a borrowed discourse from conservatives or from the liberals, but their own inspiring agenda and discourse. And we will be here to criticize even them and to provide useful analysis of that what they are suggesting. Thank you very much for watching. And again, our kind request that you go to patreon.com slash the barricade and become our patrons. A written uh, subscription to our channel and uh, some financial support would be fantastic. Thank you very much. Stay healthy, keep fighting, and we'll see you all in our next episode. Thanks to the both Thank of you. you for your useful commentary and analysis, and especially Veronica. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Goodbye. Bye.